Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers and all other lovers of the Hebrew Scriptures. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. This week we'll be covering Hosea 11, the lectionary text scheduled for August 4th, 2019. We're taking a break from our small, bonsai-sized mini-episodes to bring you a full, live, oak-sized episode with a special guest exegete. That's right. We're so pleased to have with us today Dr. Johanna von Vick Boss. Johanna taught for four decades as professor of Old Testament at my own alma mater, Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Kentucky. I was fortunate to catch the last few years of her teaching career there during my MDiv, and she was a formative influence on my development as a scholar, in addition to becoming a dear friend. Johanna continues to serve the Presbyterian Church, PCUSA, as an ordained pastor. In addition to her teaching, speaking, and preaching, she's a prolific author and an engaged activist, especially around issues of equity in terms of gender, race, and sexual orientation. Among her many great books, with several others on the way, including a commentary series on Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings uh, with Erdman's, I'd personally recommend to our audience her book, Making Wise the Simple, The Torah in Christian Faith and Practice, which really dovetails with the, the ethos of our podcast here. So we'll link you to that on our website. Johanna, welcome to First Reading. Thank you, Tim and Rachel. Glad to be here. Tim was, of course, an able assistant in my classes, so we had fun together. Remember that last class on the Psalms we did? <laughs> yeah, that was wonderful. That was very cool, I know. Especially <laughs> since we threw out half of the syllabus and just had fun with it. <laughs> no, we just <laughs> forgot about syllabuses, and, and then the, the singing at the end was so great. That was really cool. It was great. Yes, yes. Now, am I right? You spent some time recently in the Netherlands where you grew up? Yes, I was there for three weeks. So could you tell us, what's, what's, something, uh, what's something that you enjoy there in the Netherlands that just isn't the same here in the States? <laughs> well, uh, I get in touch with my roots. So for me, it's, it's always an extraordinary experience in many different ways. This time I was there at, at a couple of very significant days uh, the, the one was uh, Liberation Day and the other was Remembrance Day of the war. When we say the war, we mean the Second World War always mm-hmm. because we were occupied and I was born in that war. So uh, uh, the, the first comes Remembrance Day, which is huge. The king and the queen come, uh, they listen to speeches, there are wreaths laid at the monument on the dam. And so yeah. then you yourself, my, I myself am... I'm driven to contemplate again the enormous cost that that war took. Um, the, the destruction of Jewish life is always really clear to me. My, wow. I looked for the name of the little girl that was taken from my village. So it's it's a very um, it's very much getting in touch with my own past because it was part of my past and the past of the country, and the fact that all this Jewish life there has disappeared. So that's another thing that is very important to me. I go to the synagogue at least once, where I yeah. seem like a very odd bird. <laughs> so the next time I'm going to ask my rabbi to to write and say, she's coming and she's all right, you know, she's okay. 
And, and I said, well, I, I said to Rabbi David, but I'm not a Jew. He said, that, I'm not going to tell him that. <laughs> Johanna, I, I was interested in hearing a little bit more about how you became drawn to teaching the Hebrew Bible as a career, especially at a time when there were so few women in the Biblical Studies Guild? Well, it was a bit of an odd bird. You know, even as a child, I was a very rebellious child in school, but I also had a very... I followed my star very early. So when I was about 12 or 13, I thought I wanted to study theology. That's a ridiculous age, you know, to say, I know what I want to do. I mean, it's just insane. But mm-hmm. I did take Hebrew, and Hebrew was the only elective in my high school. I had mm-hmm. to t- I had to take five languages, so I took a sixth one. And as people do, you know, it was very intense. You know, I had to do Latin and Greek for six or five years, and then and then the modern languages, and then I took Hebrew because I thought still, you know, that was what. I wanted to do so. There must there must have been an ongoing kind of driving idea in my mind. So so then when I came to university, I loved language, I loved history, but I was in church history, so I, I veered more to the history part. And then we and then I emigrated. I finished all my exams at home, and then I, that was a good moment for me to rethink all that. So then I rethought whether I really wanted to be in history or whether I'd rather do Bible. Um, and and I got accepted at Union, and, and it's it, I had decided to go on in Bible, which was fine. There was no, you know, there were no barriers to that. And I, I've never been sorry because the text, actually, I think the text has so much history. So history was yes. still there, right? And then all my love for oh, language yeah. was all there, too. So I've been very lucky, I feel. That sounds like a perfect place to actually dive into the text. Yeah. Uh, Johanna, would you be willing to read the, the lectionary text for us for the week? Sure. So, so this is one of the more difficult texts. The, book, the entire book of Hosea is an entire, in its entirety is a horrendously corrupted, difficult text. So everybody knows that. So this chapter is no exception. So you have to look up numerous words, even when you are pretty versatile in Hebrew. And so it's... it's um, Johanna, I'm going to interrupt yeah. just for a second. For, for any of our listeners who are uh, far away from their Hebrew training, corrupt uh, does not mean a, a bad <laughs> thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a technical term where the, the Hebrew text does not make sense. The vowels or the consonants are nonsensical, and so you have to adjust it or supply. And um, that happens throughout the Bible, but especially in older texts, and Hosea is one of the older texts we have, and so it is. it does tend to be more corrupt. Just wanted to, to put Thank that out you. there. Thank you, Rachel. I'm sorry when I use terms like that. Please, please um, hold my feet to the fire and, and uh, correct me on it because that is a that is a technical term. So what I would probably do if I were preaching on this is I would read it once in um, in the NRSV translation and then once again. I think the virtue of that is also that people would then really focus more on it um, mm. and it would make clear mm. to them that we that the te- that there is a kind of instability in the text which mm-hmm. um, it's important I think for people to know it should not make them feel uncertain or uneasy it, it's it's um, a, 
It's far away from us. This text is far away, unlike the commandment to love Adonai our God. It is far away from us and across the sea. So, 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 um, so, so that's a good thing. I would want to establish that first. Mm-hmm. I might also do something else first, but I'll talk about that later. So I'm not going to read it because that's what Tim wants me to do. <laughs> So this is the whole chapter, Hosea 11, verses 1 to 11, and it goes like this. When Israel was a youngster, I loved it, and from Egypt on called him my child. I called to them, but they walked away from me. To the Baals they sacrificed, and to idols burnt incense. I myself taught Ephraim to walk, took them up in my arms, and they did not know I healed them. With human ropes I pulled them, with cords of love, and I was to them as one who lifts an infant to their cheek, and bent down to them and gave them to eat. They will return to Egypt, and Assur will be its king, for they refused to turn back and the sword will roam around in their cities and make an end to their diviners and devour on account of their counsels. My people are hung up on turning from me, to Baal they call, and he will not raise them. How will I give you up, Ephraim, and hand you over, Israel? How give you up like Adma and set you up as Tzavoim? My heart turns over within me, my compassion is altogether kindled. I will not act on my wrath. I will not turn to ruin Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, in your midst holy, and I will not come as a destroyer. After Adonai they will walk like a lion, he will roar when he thunders, they will come trembling from the west, they will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like a dove from the land of Ashur, and I will settle them in their houses. Oracle of Adonai. Hmm. So beautiful. Thank you, Johanna. Well, I'm dying to ask you so many questions about your... That was your translation of this text. I know you want to ask about why I translated (laughs) it that that way. I have also all kinds of footnotes on it here, so, you know, that say, well, I don't know. I don't know whether this is that or that is that. (laughs) I could give one example. In verse 5, I had... They will return to Egypt, but the the but the the, uh, the Hebrew text there has the word no mm-hmm. to begin with, which a lot of people read as um, he will not return to Egypt. Return. You know, give in, mm-hmm. give them to eat. Then you've taken the low with that previous phrase, and Buber has um, to Egypt. He 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 must not return. You know that's kind of a theme in uh, in the Torah that they shall not return, should not return to Egypt, right? right. As Egypt being the house of bondage, 
And Abuba reads it literally, which also would make sense. So if you had, he will not return to Egypt, but Ashur will be its king. Mm -hmm. You know, that's also Mm -hmm. a good reading. And in that case, Mm -hmm. I honestly am not sure. But Mm -hmm. I'd settle on something and read it, you know, whatever, and not fuss over it in the congregation. (laughs) Because it's going to be, you know, too... Too confusing, I think, and you just yeah. have to. That's uh, one of the things we, we do regularly on the podcast is talk about preaching pitfalls. I and, know, uh, I know. Getting too caught <laughs> up in the difficulties of a text. Exactly. Think, so it'll be good for us to tease out a few of those in our conversation, but we always want right. to say to preachers that when you're preaching it, don't lose your congregation by getting too lost into the, the weeds of translation. Right, sure. There's another interesting one in the first verse when... Um, when I read from Egypt on, I called him my child. But Buber again has, um, I called to my child, which you can also do. Right. So it, is it the call, you know, that the, that the parent does to the child, you know, that's just a loving call? Or is it actually naming Israel God's child? It's, it's a different... That is a different reading. Mm -hmm. Can I pause? Because you just mentioned that that parental imagery, which is so strong in these um, first four verses. Can you just sort of flesh out for us all of the parent imagery in this text? And then, uh, so first flesh that out for us. And then second, talk about uh, your opinion on, should we talk about this as maternal imagery, as mother imagery, or just stay with it as parent imagery? First of all, I would never preach on this chapter all by itself like that. It's in the lectionary, I know, and so we're doing that. Because I think Hosea is just so suited to do as a book. It's not a long mm-hmm. book. It's, not, it's very difficult, and I don't know that I would choose it as a book. But if I were preaching from it, I'd do the whole book. And I'd begin with your, you know, the one you did, which is so difficult. And you have the most difficult part almost behind you, right? Right, <laughs> so, right. Yeah. So then you can get on with other things. So, so, but the Bible has many voices. You know, the more, the older I get and the more I work with it, the more I see that, that our desire to see one thing in the Bible or have one line just isn't isn't there and and mm-hmm. so it, so there is there are there are different voices and also in Hosea and there are different voices about God's gender let's say in the Bible but in well within this own chapter and right in this chapter but yeah. I I think the and it's I think the Bible in a way is a lot like the Talmud that way you know so in the Talmud you get uh, discussions, right? And it's very confusing for for Christians mm-hmm. that don't know the Talmud because we're not used to that. But I have now studied for, I think, five years every Saturday with a rabbi who really knows the Talmud. And I don't know the Talmud, but I'm beginning to see what's going on there. So one rabbi will say this and another will say that. And then, a, and it, there's no no rabbi who comes in and says, no, you're both wrong. This is the word of God. And that's basically <laughs> the problem, that we don't have anybody who's giving us the final answer, right? We just need to work with this and see where we line up. What what is meaningful? What what's and the a difficulty with this particular text, I think, is where do we find our place in it, right? We're not the prophet. We're not really Israel either. We we don't even compare to that 
tiny place that was about to be overrun by a huge aggressive empire. So, so where do we find our place? And I think it is exactly in those statements about God's parental love. The fact that in this text, the parental love is tilts to the female is extraordinary, of course, because you would in, in ancient religions have either a female goddess or a male god, but not one that would incorporate both. So I would emphasize the female. I would emphasize the fact that, that this is one of the texts and there are others. It's telling that that the, the particular texts where that takes place are, are almost all exilic or post-exilic texts. Yes. So you have them in Isaiah, yes. right? In Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 45, Isaiah 49. Those are all second Isaiah texts. And then you have them in, in Isaiah 60. I discuss all those in Reimagining God. So so I was very aware of that. That they all, that also all of those have a, have a maternal image of God. They do. They all contain that. And then they also, I, all of the books that you mention also contain the image of God as the angry husband and Israel or Judah right. as the adulterous right. wife. So it's like this, this ping pong, this whiplash of imagery yeah. of the divine, which goes from the sublime to the horrible. Yeah, I think it's not the not second Isaiah. I don't think has the adulterous wife. I, Jeremiah. No, I'm sorry, that's first does, Isaiah, right? So, so that's a good example of the multi-voiced nature. So. There is maybe one image that we can't do anything with today in our much different society and far more patriarchal than than ancient Israel. I'm convinced of that. I, I think our society has gone haywire with patriarchy. So we live in a much more dangerous society. I think there's a war on women. I think there's a we can speak of femicide today. And so this is a, these become dangerous images, just like the image of annihilating other peoples becomes dangerous, right? It all depends on the context you're in. I think in the particular context that the annihilation of peoples was spoken about, it was not dangerous because Israel was a province, right? Judah was a little <laughs> province. I mean, they, it was ludicrous to even think about that, but it's not ludicrous today. So, so, so I think then the context of today is really important in that regard. So I would speak about it because I think it is important to lift up. This is prophetic language, right? So prophetic language is almost always hyperbolic. This is this is dramatic language, emotional language. So this is not a sort of image, even even if God is spoken of as a husband, as a sort of cool cat, cool cat, you know, in a in a male box, in the gender box, right? God is not sitting in the gender box of cool, distanced cat. I mean, God is emotional and 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 emotional. So all the metaphors that are in here are so strong. I think almost impossibly strong. Um, you asked, should we gender God as a mother? I'd say yes, but. My focus would be, I would run through some of the metaphors if I were preaching on it, right? Just to, just to bring that out for people, to make that come alive. Do we speak of God that way? You know, do we really understand God to be so moved by our, by our waywardness, let's say, as a parent is about their child? And as mm -hmm. a parent myself, 
I, I completely tap into that language, yeah, you know, I calling did. to the child and they just walk away, not <laughs> listening, you know. We don't have uh, the pesalim. You saw the, 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 the images in there, uh, uh, Tim, that were in, uh, in the Ehud story, right? The, the, mm-hmm. They're in here also, the human images. Uh, that's not, it's not literal. It's, they just, they get into all kinds of stuff we don't want them to get into when we call to them and we say, this isn't going to go well, you know, this is, we, and so those, I think those. We, we know how this is going to end. <laughs> and they don't listen to us. Of course they don't. No. And, well, not only do they not listen to us, but like in verse three, it says they don't, they didn't know that I healed right. them. That, that was a, that was a, fa- that is a fabulous image. And actually I looked, I looked into that. In Exodus 15, so so much of Hosea calls up the wilderness period, right? The wilderness period is the ideal period when when Israel is betrothed to God or when Israel is a child, right? Israel was not a child, but it's that, that imagery of not yet a people. When God carried them on eagle's wings, as in Isaiah in uh, Exodus um, 19. So, so... In Exodus 15, that's that's in that in-between period when they're wandering around after the, after the victory and mm-hmm. at, at the sea of reeds, and and then they uh, they they're on their way to Sinai, and it's no good, right? They're constantly they're constantly murmuring and rebelling and being just obnoxious selves, and 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 it says right there in Exodus 15:22, I Adonai am your healer. It, I looked up all the, I didn't look them all up, but I found a, a number of fantastically interesting places where where the self of God says, I heal and no one delivers in Deuteronomy also. And mm-hmm. in uh, Job, it's a, it's a statement about God. It's especially a Psalms um, phrase, yes. who heals all your diseases. We know that one, right? right what right. is that, right? Seeing God as the great medical, the doctor, I mean, it's like, it's so evocative, I think, a hands-on image. So that, so spurning that, right? Spurning yeah. that that image is, is goes to the heart of God, right? It's really... Yeah, you can feel it. You, yeah, so so that that expression that God's heart is turning over, I think that turning over was an interesting phrase because it's hafach, which is the same verb that's used for Sodom and Gomorrah and for Nineveh mm-hmm. and right? for Nineveh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, mm. but but doesn't that happen? I mean, and lave, you know, isn't the same. We say that lave is not the seat of the emotions, but it is sometimes in the Bible. <laughs> And this is my this is the this is the whole thing I'm writing on for my dissertation. This oh, is my whole great. point. No, I I think this is so powerful. You're um so you you know, we, we have this parental imagery in verses one through four, and then this moment in verse five where God is either uh offering a uh declarative statement of destruction or kind of that more parental like I like we talked about earlier I know what's coming I know what's going to happen would you just listen to me and then this this shift from that again again this idea of like whiplash in verse 8 of how can I give you up how could I surrender you and and then this idea of my heart has turned 
turned over within me or against me or upon me. Um, and this idea of, of heart in the Hebrew Bible, lev, is, is um, often mind, but really it's, it's both heart, heart and mind. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. your seat of your reason, the yeah. seat of your emotions. And so it's, it's like this window into the divine inner struggle where everything is turning over inside exactly. of God. Yeah, and that's exactly what it feels like, of course, if your child is really, you know, you know that they're on a path of destruction. I mean, this is coming. So I think in Hosea, that's also very typical for me of Hosea, um, a a seesaw, as I think is what you call it. There's that back and forth. There's a constant announcement of disaster and then these strong emotional statements about the 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 bond that exists between God and the people which you have in you know this is coming out in this one passage all at all at the same time so so I thought about I looked at Buber as I as I still do oftentimes and he says that that Hosea is about the love of God. It's about God's, he, you know, it's the loving kindness. It's the chesed of God. But that love is not demanded of Israel, which is interesting. This is a kind of side thing, okay? I'm going on this, this path for just a moment, and if you want to kick it out, mm-hmm. do that. But... but um, God's love is demanding, God's love is angry, but God's love is merciful. So in the end, I think it's always the, the love that trumps the anger. That's why I would want to focus on verse 9, because verse 9 kind of contains all of that. 9 is a great verse because it has all these, these ideas in it, all these, all these statements, both about anger and about mercy. And it it contains the word turn, and that I kept that in the NRSV in verse nine. It says, "I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim." But that's the word shuv, and the word shuv is mm. key to this chapter. It has mm. it's, it's a it's it's a prophetic word. Of course, it means much more than turning around. It means it means a kind of converting. It means turning away from the things you're doing toward God. And so here it says that God is repentant in a way. Shuv in the prophets is repentance. And so God is repenting. I will repent from my idea to ruin Ephraim, <laughs> right? For I am God and not a man, and <laughs> in your midst holy. It, there is something to be said about every part of that of those phrases. If God's love in the passage is demanding and also wrathful, then there is a promise here that the, that anger will not be the basis of God's action ever. So then that also means whatever is going to happen to them is not God's anger, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Assyria is going to come. I mean, this is in a bad period of, of their yeah. lives. And uh, it's like the eve of the Second World War. So, mm-hmm. so this is a very That's bad a great, thing. Yeah. But it will not be. This actually says that will not be God's doing. This is not yeah. God's thing. It's just the, it's just the way empires work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it won't be the final end. That's, it will, it will not it be the final end, right. And so so the place, I think, if I'm always looking when I'm, when I'm preaching for where do we find ourselves, right? Where do we find ourselves both as a, a group of people in a big empire, actually, and where do we find ourselves as Christians in a, in a text about Israel? 
we're not, and I would, I would want to make that very clear so that we're not sort of making an automatic identification with either as a people with the prophet, we're not the prophet, because people like to think they're the prophet, right? We're not the prophet, the preacher's not the prophet, it's not the prophet. So we're not to be overrun by a large empire, obviously, as a people, right? But I think there are still powerful forces around us. So, there, so there's a link. Once we have established a distance, we could still find links between feeling helpless, feeling that we are in the grip of forces of division and ambition around yes. us that feel overwhelming, that, that beset yeah. us, right? I mean, I, yeah. it's a scary time that we live in right now, I think. So, so what, what, this, what this verse 9 says is that unlike the powers of the world, which is always a wrathful, angry power, I think, aggression is always built in to empire's power. God's way with the people is not one of destruction, however difficult a line may be, right? The, mm-hmm. the tenor and the content of this passage is not difficult. It's, it's easy. It's easy in a way to understand that this is about God's love. This is about God's mercy. Even though there is no deserving this mercy because they're doing everything wrong and we're doing everything wrong. So that's not what it's about. Now, now I think that the declaration that God is not a man, which is how I would translate it, because I think ish is always the gendered word, isn't it? I yeah, mean, yeah. it's not Adam here. It's not mortal as the, as the I think that's what the NRSV may have yeah, there. that's right. Mortal. Mm-hmm. That's what a number of translations do. That's fine. That's fine. I think that's embedded in there also. But I think it's also a gendered word. So what that says is something very interesting. You could probably do a whole sermon just on that line. Because much hatred arises from genderedness. Right? So what this speaks to is that what in humanity is divided, is gendered, in God is not divided. And so in the end, yes, it does speak to the fact that in, that God is not mortal. But saying not a man makes it very specific, I think. So that, that can also speak to the fact that we should, we, we're going astray if we identify God solely with male characteristics and a male language and male terminology. And then second, God is holy, so... That means that God is other also, and that's those go together. God is holy because God is not gendered. So speaking mm. of God only in gender terms is probably incorrect. It was incorrect then, and it's incorrect. Now, that they had that insight, I think, is pretty remarkable. I think where the link with the New Testament might lie is with the notion of idolatry, which I think is there in both the Colossians and the Luke text that um, idolatry, idolatry is a big issue in Hosea, but according to Buber, it isn't just about creating other gods, it's making God into a Baal. That's what he says, it's the Baalization of of, uh, Adonai. Now that is a fascinating view of idolatry that could be really powerful in a, a sermon, that idolatry is not just, quote unquote, worshiping other gods but it's making God into something that God is not. Right. Yeah. 
So, for example, then, you know, you could say that the worship of money, the worship uh, that we, that's mentioned, I think, in, uh, in Colossians, greed um, is, a, is a kind of bailization of, of, uh, of God. We make this into a God. Yeah. And, and so, um, so, yeah, in any case, yeah, you could do that. Holiness, I think, is a very interesting concept. You would want to say something mm-hmm. about that. Uh, mm-hmm. It means that God is other, but here it says also this, that's why that verse attracts me so. It says, in the midst of you. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the holiness of God is in the midst of the people. So then it's not just out there, away, it's it's separate, but in the midst. And it, then, then that means that we, that as a community, Israel was called on to reflect that holiness. That's, you then shall be holy, for I, Adonai, your God, am holy. And, you know, in the Leviticus text, it means mm-hmm. that people have to reflect that holiness. So, so as Christians, I would say there's another hook there, because God, well, there's a couple of things. God is not just with any community. God is with Israel here, Right. So we need to say something about that. I can't, I would not be following the trail of, well, we're Israel, you know, not, we wouldn't, not that we say it that way, but by ignoring the fact that there is a special election of Israel, you do kind of say that. We've taken that over, right? We are now Israel, so God's now in the midst of us. So, so I would mention that, I would focus on that and make clear that God is with the people of God, Israel, so that we acknowledge that in a kind of gratitude way, you know, that we, we as Christians are grateful to Israel for showing us this, the Israel of the past and the Israel of the present, right? It needs to always be, I think, a Christian acknowledgement of indebtedness, which gets us out of that, either ignoring that Israel is or Jews, we can just say Jews and Judaism rather than Israel, so as so as not to confuse it with the state of Israel. You know, that's a, that's another matter. But that that uh, the Jews and Judaism of the past still for us are the are the people that we are grateful to. It's sort of the opposite of what happened in the Second World War. But then the community that we are is also calls itself in covenant with God, right? We are in covenant with God as Israel was, as we believe it, uh, as adopted children in the covenant, as Calvin said, right? So we are called to holiness also, required to be other, just as God is other. And that is that means not being lodged, and here I'm circling around to the gendered nature of the text, not being lodged in angry genderedness. Even in in the mercy of God here is a model for those who are in covenant with God, that just, just as God here is not uh, acting out in wrath, uh, right. there's a model that we also might temper our own wrath and find ways to act in mercy rather than anger. But but it, the 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 most difficult part of that text is that anger may be lodged in genderedness. That's a difficult part of it because we don't want to acknowledge that. So so I might choose that as a contemporary issue, you know, because you need to have something that makes this concrete. Um, it's a, it's dangerous waters to step into, but what does it mean that, that hundreds of women die every month here in the United States because they're killed? What What is going on here? And what does it mean that we, we have so many heads of state, all of whom happen to be male, 
who speak out of anger all the time. If anger is what typifies the powers of the world, then the braggarts and the boasters, right, who are quick to take offense, which is always true about a boaster and a braggart, then like God, we are called on not to come in anger, but in mercy. And that mercy, if God's mercy trumps anger, then our mercy needs to trump anger, right? If we're, if right. we're building ourselves on, on that model. Then. Well, and that's, I think that you're, you're lifting up, Johanna, that I hear you lifting up, the idea that this text carries a lot of weight. It, it's, a, it's a weighty text. It's almost a burdensome text in that preaching it requires you to go places with your congregation that will be sublime with the paternal in- imagery and the gorgeous assertion that I will not come in fury. And they will also be really, really difficult because this text would be tone deaf if it did not speak about anger in leaders, or if it did not speak about um, issues of domestic violence against women or uh, gendered domestic violence. This is an important text to preach. Um, At the same time, as as a preacher, you have to be very savvy about which direction you're going to take this text that will both challenge and, as you said, Johanna, comfort right. your congregation. Right, and, and, and you don't want to have people to close up their ears and stop listening, you know, so sometimes mm-hmm. that can happen. I'm sure that has sometimes happened when I've preached in the past, but you don't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. So I would advise a, a pastor just to spend a little time, read read a little bit in Kings, in 2 Kings 14 to 17 maybe, and then also spend time with the whole book of Hosea and not jump too quickly to commentaries, just spend time with the book. Just to mm-hmm. spend time reading through it. And mm-hmm. if you're no longer comfortable with Hebrew, that's fine. Then just read it all in a couple of translations, not in one mm-hmm. only. Maybe a King James and then an NRSV and a Jewish study Bible, the Tanakh, you know, that's, that's all... Mm-hmm helpful so you get a little bit of an idea that this is not a simple text and that it's differently translated anybody can do that and if you still want to look up a word or two you can do that also you know that's 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 how i would if you're not going to preach on this whole book just in this chapter still you need to spend time with the book you 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 can't just take this one chapter yeah i think that's a great connection to make in fact my uh when i was thinking about how i might advise people to take up this text uh, for for a sermon, the angle that I was thinking about had to do with sort of in that kind of a political milieu where where we are sort of, as you say, beset by all of these powers of empire. Sometimes there's a, a desire to feel that we've we've outgrown our dependency on God and to look to other forms of security and in ways to feel that we're safe. And I feel like this this text uh, recalls that sense of Israel's uh, childlike dependency on God and how uh, they had, uh, as the prophet says, kind of turned from that to dependence on on other forms of security. And God here is is recalling that that parental, that motherly imagery and saying, you you haven't outgrown your dependence on me and uh I had a a professor in seminary, you might know, who uh, told me that uh, prophecy, even prophecy of destruction, is always calling for a response, uh, for a decision on the part (laughs) of the people. I was going to get around to that. 
<laughs> yes, it's the it's the boober line that that prophecy never announces a a immutable decree. It's always a call to return, right? And a, and yes. a call. This is a call to return, and that the dependency on God means a certain kind of attitude toward one another. So that's why Buber says the the Book of Hosea doesn't call for love toward God. It calls for the people to reflect that love toward one another in the community, mm-hmm. because it does also talk about righteousness and justice. You know, as mm-hmm. it's not a central core theme as it is in Amos, but it certainly does that. So then then it's not then the the childlike dependency doesn't mean passivity. So that could kind of you know, we need you need to get of course away from that that mm-hmm. that um this this does speak to God's love as it is of the parent, the mother especially for the child, but uh, but they're no longer children, so so they have grown up, and they need to reflect that holiness of God in their midst. Mm. Yeah, mm. I think that's what makes this whole image of this the the when I was thinking about preaching this and and leapfrogging up off of what you just said, Johanna. That's what makes this image of a window into a divine inner conflict so powerful, because I think inner conflict could be an image that we wrestle with every day right. that we it's a state that we understand around right. a number of different things like colossians lists and like luke's t- talks about and what we have in this text is a a very brief moment of watching god deal right. with a divine inner conflict and choosing mercy right right and i think i think that's a um that's just that could be a really powerful um, a really powerful preaching point, as well as connected to this idea of holiness in our midst. You know, what what does it what mean does it to have holiness? Like? Right. Yes, exactly, exactly. It doesn't mean you always feel peaceful about things, and it doesn't mean you never feel conflict. Right. It simply right. means exactly. that when you are exactly. in the in the midst of conflict, right. you are choosing mercy right. over uh destructive right. you know the, so the hebrew bible has a lot of different words for anger uh, but there was a great article written about when it talks about uh this particular word for anger which is also the word for nose yeah the off, off yeah or off <laughs> it's it's always a type of anger which is about to explode into destructive action <laughs> so this isn't just anger that's being talked about here it's anger that it has gone beyond the tipping point and is about to cause destruction um, and again, all things that I think everybody in our congregation, especially parents, could relate to. <laughs> right. right. And just, you know, just ask, ask the question directly, saying what, what reflects holiness in our midst and what doesn't? Mm. What, what is it that we need to work on here? What do we need to do today? What is, this is a pressing time. So actually, I think mm. the, the connections are pretty can be pretty closely made that we live in such a absolute time of great anxiety i, I feel that yeah. around me and i you know we feel it we all feel it so what what are, but we're still dealing with our ordinary daily life right so how do yeah. we how yeah. do we set our course what what yeah. is it that that we called on at this point and that then that that's what it would get specific and just asking the question what do you think what do you think we need to do here you know to get mm-hmm. to get beyond anger to get beyond being locked into mm-hmm. a kind of box of of destructiveness 
So getting out of that, as God is out of the gender box. God is not in a gender box, that means not being in an anger box in this case. It's a pretty, pretty amazing text when you come to down to it, don't you? Yeah. It is. I think one last preaching pitfall before we wrap up, Tim, if I can throw this out there, is um, one of the hardest parts, I'm always aware of one of the hardest parts with um, preaching gendered texts is we can often fall into the binary of male gender and female gender. And um, as a preacher, you just need to be aware of who's in your congregation and who might not identify with the male as angry gender, female as compassionate gender. So even even if you do choose to preach that, how might you even trouble that uh, binary that the text lifts up? Yeah, yeah, that's that's right, because the, the image of the... If it is a maternal image, which it is a maternal image, it's very clear, the bending down, uh, feeding them, you know, there's a, there's a whole raft of things here. Then it's not just the compassionate image. It's an image also mm-hmm. of healing, of teaching. Mm-hmm. I taught, mm-hmm. right? I taught Ephraim to walk. So it's the mother. If it's a mother, it's mother that's not boxed in either in certain kind of gender. Right. Compassion is a right. part of it, but that's also paternal. There isn't anything specifically yeah. maternal about that. It's the, the amazing part, I think, is that God isn't locked into either one of these, right? The saying right. that God is not a man just means that God is not locked in a gender box, either male yeah. or female. Right? So if you wanted to preach that particular part of the text, that would be a good way to go, I think, yeah. that God transcends yep. gender, actually. Yeah. The God of the yep. Hebrew Bible, that these people thought of that. You know, what kind of an amazing thing is that? It's just, mm-hmm. It stuns the mind. I think we've stumbled onto a really rich text here, and I I could, I could see myself doing like a whole uh, month or two worth exactly. of sermons on this one text. Exactly, you could do a year on this text. I'm, I'm, I swear to you, this is so rich. This is so much that I yeah. thought, oh my God! And I almost never preach from the prophets because it's impossible. Mm. I think I, I, it, it's Johanna. That is not helpful for this podcast. That is not helpful. No, yeah, that'll go. I know. It's it's just it's so hard. It's it's hard because it's so rich, and you can you always feel, Mm. oh, I've said that, but I left that out, and I've said that, and I left that out, and how how do you get uh, wrap your arms around this enormous text filled with all Mm -hmm. kinds of things, right? And you and you can't. So that's fine, which is also a hopeful thing because we know that this is uh, a corpus that we'll never be able to exhaust. Exactly, sweetie. And for you too, this is also a hopeful thing because I can promise you, you will never get bored with it. (laughs) (laughs) I have not ever been bored with it and I've occupied myself with it for a long time. I'm never bored with the Bible. Well, we could we could uh, talk about and preach about this text for years, as we've said, but we are kind of coming to the end of our time here. All right, sweetheart. So uh, this is a good place where we could wrap up our conversation today. Anytime that Tim is called sweetheart, it's a good place to wrap up the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, Johanna, it's been such a treat to talk with you about this text. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast with us. It was my pleasure. Delightful to be with both of you and to speak with both Rachel and you, Tim. Thank you. 
Now remember, dear listeners, if you're interested in more of Dr. Boss's work, we'll post a link on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. Until next week, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Thanks for listening. We need to give credit here to Blue Dot Sessions for some additional music this week. And we have a big favor to ask you. First Reading is still in its startup phase, and in the competitive world of free podcasts, we need your help to broaden our reach. If you'd take two or three minutes right now to forward a link to this episode or to our website, firstreadingpodcast.com, to your network of preaching and Bible-loving friends, or go to iTunes and give us some stars and a brief positive review, those two things will help us exponentially grow our listenership and help make this podcast sustainable for the long run. Thanks for that, and have a great week.